this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Our guest co-hosts today are Lisa and Jill of the podcast U-Turns. That's Y-O-U Turns. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's so exciting. Thanks, Annie. Yeah, very excited. Could you tell us a bit about yourselves and your show? Sure. This is Jill talking. (laughs) You'll get the difference between our voices as the podcast goes on. So I am a content creator and a podcaster, as we've said, um, and a good friend of Lisa's ever since we met working on the Oz magazine, Dr. Oz The Good Life, which was a partnership between Hearst and Lisa's other half, Dr. Mehmet Oz. And Lisa was the editor-at-large, and I was the editor-in-chief, and we were kind of partners in crime. And then the magazine industry went through its Troubles and essentially that um, that monthly magazine got turned into a bookazine. I left the project, but Lisa and I stayed friends, and we started this um, we started this podcast together. So I've been going through lots of kind of career focused twisty U turns, and then thrown into the mix of it this fall was what I call um, early onset empty nesthood because <laughs> I took my older daughter up to college with my husband Robert, and we dropped her off. And then, boom, my younger daughter decided that she wanted to do a one-semester boarding program. So we dropped her off, too, and came home to the emptiest, most eerily clean house I've seen in 18 years. Um, And Lisa's been a great friend and sisterly (laughs) handholder through that whole process. Well, it was just sort of, this is Lisa speaking, Um, it was sort of perfect because we found ourselves both in periods of transition at the same time. So I was going through being an empty nester um, right before Jill was and trying to figure out what the next iteration of, of my career life would be. And so we started speaking about how to navigate this period in the most productive way, and neither of us really knew. And so we thought we could, if we started a podcast, we could ask people who actually could give us advice on how to to navigate those life changes in a way that was that was positive and um, looked for opportunities and uh, rather than sort of being resentful of life changes that were thrust upon us. Um, So, and we got the opportunity to work together. So it came together just sort of perfectly that we got to spend time together and got to explore our own personal evolution together. And both of you have brought up this empty nest syndrome or whatever empty nest thing that you experienced. (laughs) And that is relevant to the topic that we're discussing today because you both pitched the idea of an episode around motherhood and particularly the identity aspects of motherhood. And we touched on this topic in a recent episode called Mother Destroyer. And like I said in that episode, I am not a mother. And I just want to say before we dive into this conversation that for that motherhood encompasses so much more than how it's traditionally been portrayed and talked about. And also for some people that want children, that want to be a mother and forever, whatever reason, can't. These episodes are difficult and we see you and we definitely need to do a whole episode or probably multiple episodes around that. 
And there's so many different kinds of mother figures. You know, we all have our, you know, our natural birth mothers. And then we have a sort of a collection of other kinds of mothers in our lives. And, you know, I mean, I, my mother's best friend was a kind of mother to me growing up. And I, they're just all turn of mothers in, in many, many forms. Um, and I think, I think your identity gets shaped whether that child is your, you know, adopted child or your birth child or your, you know, or a child that just means a tremendous amount to you. And I, I think the energy around motherhood is not limited to people who have given birth. I think any time that you create something um, so that you're giving birth to an idea or to an art project, any time that you nurture and care for something, whether it's a pet or another human being, you are you are embodying the archetypal mother uh, energy. So I, I think it's applicable to anybody listening, and guys too, frankly, um, who would be listening to this podcast. I think there there is relevance around the archetypal mother image and energy and and ev- all of us. And I think something that I heard a lot from after we did this episode on motherhood um, is this identity crisis that women reported experiencing after becoming a mother. And according to the internet, there are loads of folks that have experienced and or are experiencing this very same thing. Um, One thing that came up when we were talking about how we want to approach this topic um, is identity in general, and not just when it comes to motherhood, but how for women, their identity so often is defined through other people as a function of others. And because of that, how often it shifts. Women are often defined through their relationship to usually male peers, someone's daughter, someone's girlfriend, someone's wife. And this trend is obvious in the way that we speak um, and the way that we we write. I remember when, I'm pretty sure it was Taylor Swift, um, someone, a famous woman nonetheless, was described as so-and-so less famous person's girlfriend, and she made a statement about how she found (laughs) that writing problematic. It happens all the time. And would the both of you like to speak about that? Not necessarily Taylor Swift, but you can if you want. But this whole idea (laughs) around women and identity. I actually have a famous husband. (laughs) uh, And... And my identity is a hundred percent glommed onto his. I I almost don't have a name, you know, in in some respects, which is okay in some days, some days, and some days not okay at all. But I I do think that we more dangerous than having other people define us by our relationships. I think we tend to define ourselves by our relationships to a certain extent. So we see ourselves as someone's mother or someone's wife or someone's daughter. uh, And that's where I think it can be dangerous, where we don't have the self-determination I think that we really need. Um, I don't know how we break out of that. I think it's been cultural for so many centuries that I think we have to actively fight against it. And I think it has to be something that's conscious. I don't think we'll be able to do it without paying attention to it. And, And it's something that we have to raise the next generation of women to think differently. You know, every generation's got to make progress on this problem because I think you're completely right. It's a slot that we put ourselves in, but it's a slot that society puts us in. You know, and it's just unbelievably important that our daughters, you know, take a step forward on this. Absolutely. And questions around identity, 
like this are a huge part of motherhood and becoming a mother and these phases of motherhood. It's a monumental shift. So we thought that in this conversation, we would look at the phases of motherhood and talk about these shifts. And I suppose the first is pregnancy. And to be clear, again, not all mothers go through this stage, but it is a part of the process for many. And you could also think of it in terms of changing family dynamics. Having a baby is an act of creation. Pregnancy is more than creating a new human. It's also creating a new family. A baby is the catalyst that will open new possibilities for more intimate connections, as well as new stresses and women's closest relationships with their partner, siblings, and friends. How would the both of you say that your identity shifted when you became pregnant? Well, I found that with, you know, you can't, I can only speak for myself. And I know that there are people I'm very close to who felt like pregnancy was the most blessed time of their lives and they were so happy and they just, they loved the idea of some, another person growing inside of them and they could eat anything they wanted. I really did not like being pregnant at all. And part of it was because it is an identity shift on every level because on the physical level, I'd always, much of who I was pre-pregnancies was flirtatious. I had a, a sexuality that enjoyed flirtation with people and suddenly that was out the window. So there was this physical transformation. Um, so my identity was that of blob, not a not a, <laughs> a flirtatious young girl anymore. And then there was an emotional transformation because now you don't have the freedom that you had post-pregnancy. You have to be more responsible. You can't go out and get drunk just because you feel like it. So Emotionally, you have a level of responsibility that you've never had before. And then spiritually, you suddenly have this purpose and meaning to your life, even if you don't do anything, don't even get out of bed in the morning. There is some level of of doing something worthwhile in the universe. And so everything, everything is turned upside down. At least I felt like when I got pregnant. Jill, what about you? You know, I I can't say everything felt different. I was so fascinated by the Petri dish that was my body, by this crazy experiment that my body seemed to have become. Um, So for me, it was really just interesting to get granular with the physical changes. I was at work and I was, you know, pretty much ignoring my pregnancy for much of the time that I was at work. Um, Didn't think about it. I remember being on the phone with, I was the executive editor at Glamour at the time, and I remember being on the phone with a writer at the very end of my pregnancy, and he was actually driving me absolutely nuts. And I finally, I think I said to him in frustration, you know what? I'm going to pick this phone call up at home. I'm eight months pregnant and I, I got to get out of this office. And I remember he yelled at me and said, what do you mean you're eight months pregnant? How could you not have told me? Because we had a phone relationship. This guy lived in Boston. And I just remember thinking, what difference does it make? Why, why should it change anything? He was furious with me. <laughs> and... You know, I I do remember thinking nothing has happened yet. My body is just doing this extraordinary, independent thing, and I'm continuing to work. And, you know, it hasn't happened yet. This baby hasn't happened yet. Um, But 
people, the world, and it's not just people touching your belly, which I know women freak out about, but I never did freak out about it. Again, I felt like a giant science experiment, so I had no reason to be offended when people kind of wanted to poke the experiment. But the world does start to see you differently, and you see it in people's faces, and you see it in how they behave toward you. They see you as this somewhat delicate thing, even though what you're doing is extraordinarily powerful. I think they also on some level are a little intimidated by this powerful thing that you're doing. Um, so, you know, in terms of an identity shift, I don't think I felt anything but physical shifts, which I was fascinated by, uh, but the world was definitely starting to look at me differently, and I sensed that. I like the description of your body as a giant science experiment. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is what it felt like, I will tell you. <laughs> and I, I'm with Lisa. I mean, I did not particularly enjoy pregnancy after my second daughter was born. I remember within five minutes, I looked at my husband and said, I am so freaking excited to be done. I am never going to have to do this again. And, you know, I mean, the the doneness, the joy of having her was primary. Right behind it was the joy that I was never going to have to be <laughs> pregnant again. <laughs> well, if we move out of this pregnancy phase and this pregnancy identity and we look at post-pregnancy and sort of that immediate aftermath um, and going back to that identity crisis I was describing that a lot of listeners wrote in about when they became a mother of not feeling like they are a mother even though when they, when a nurse or doctor hands a baby, their baby to them, um, and she is ceased to be called her name and is instead called mom. Um, and some people described it as birthing two people, the baby and your new mom identity. And um, one thing that both of you sort of, I guess, alluded to is this mom body or a mom uniform. Um, and I saw a lot of people describe this feeling like their body didn't feel like it was their own. They were having to wear looser clothes than they might want, feeling pressure to throw away what one author called F me boots. So <laughs> you're losing this identity as a sexual woman. People out there, don't throw them away. Just put them on a high <laughs> shelf. <laughs> Advice the episode. <laughs> you might need them again. Well, it's crazily ironic because you get to this spot physically precisely because you were wearing <laughs> me boots, right? So <laughs> at um, some point. It, yeah, the, the, the sex kind of makes you unsexy, which is really unfair. But yeah, the, there's so many things that go on in the early early days after giving birth, you don't recognize yourself physically. And, and you know, you have that, that sea of churning hormones that you don't recognize either. And so you're a mix of madly in love with this little creature next to you because of all the oxytocin and then incredibly depressed because you don't know what the hell you're doing and no one's really told you and you're kind of playing it by ear. So you're full of doubt. And, um, and so I... And then you look at yourself in the mirror and then you're depressed on top of not knowing what the hell you're doing. And then, of course, you the oxytocin comes back and you're blissfully happy. So you, I, it's like a, this crazy schizophrenic phase, I think, um, all the time because you're back and forth and back and forth. It's, it's absolutely wild. And you go from, you know, I mean, there are certain things that are kind of extraordinary. Breastfeeding is an extraordinary, if it, if it goes well at all for you, the fact that you can feed this 
little thing, everything it needs, yeah. automatically, you are literally a food machine that automatically produces exactly what is needed at exactly the time it's needed. But I think a lot of women have issues and then Lots feel like they, they are a failure because they can't yes. produce milk and somehow it's they can't will it into production no. so they hate their bodies. Oh, it's so But it's horrible. like, you know, you, you go from maybe you have a successful breastfeeding session and you feel like, yes, yes, this is the most important thing I have ever done. I fed my baby to, you know, not being able to diaper them and just feeling like such a total failure. It's like this role that you're both, you know, prepared for, evolution has prepared you for in some ways, but in other ways you're just, you're ridiculously behind the curve. And I think particularly now, you know, women have tremendous competency in the world. There's very, there are very few roles you get, you get dropped into that you haven't had some sort of preparation for except this one. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not something, at least now, I think, especially with a lot of magazine articles and their support groups, people are actually talking about it. But when you and I were having our kids, it wasn't one of those things you could just pick up the phone and say, I'm failing miserably as a mom today. I have postpartum, you know? Right. I mean, at least at least that's getting some discussion now. We had a guest on U-Turns recently who actually started a, a an app and a whole social network because she was suffering from postpartum depression and she felt so unbelievably alone. And it took her quite a long time to find anyone who would exchange with her honestly about struggling around motherhood. And, you know, I, you know, she said, interestingly on our podcast, she was on, you know, Instagram scrolling around and there was one, you know, beatific picture after another. And here she was with bleeding nipples <laughs> and a wicked case of postpartum and, you know, a belly that, you know, was hanging over the top of her jeans by four inches, thinking like nothing about this picture is beautiful. Um, and she, it, it just made her isolation that much worse. Oof, yeah, we're going to come back to the whole social media aspect of this, but I think this does echo some things that we talked about in our Mother Destroyer episode of the bifurcation of women into the Madonna or the horror um, and mothers into the perfect ideal mom or the terrible mom. We don't really see or hear much outside those experiences, although this is starting to change. And something else that the two of you brought up when we were discussing what we wanted to include in this podcast um, was not being able to return to work as early as you'd like or having to take on um, a different work identity. Maybe, not always. But uh, could you speak to that? Um, well, I kind of bet, and I'm going to shout out to my friend Lauren Smith Brody who wrote this amazing book called The Fifth Trimester that's really all about you know, what what she calls the birth of a working mom. Like it's a, there are all these transitions that you go through and one that doesn't get much attention is that return to work. So maybe you've gotten your, if you're lucky, you've gotten your three-month leave and then bam, you're back at work. Um, and it's, you know, there I think they're amazing. There are things to be grateful for. I used to exchange with my, with my boss when I had really little kids on Mondays, we would look at each other and say, TGIM, you know, because it's, there was a sense that at least we had returned to this closed environment where we had some modicum of control, where we could ask for things and they would get done, where people would ask things of us and we could get them done within some kind of a time frame that felt reasonable. It just was a sphere that 
was run by adults and there was you felt like you had a modicum of control. And then you would get home and all bets were off. I mean, you're totally at the at the mercy of your kid. But at the same time, you know, working motherhood is an identity that it's yet one more identity that has to be thrashed out and you often have to negotiate it with a boss and and um colleagues are all on the spectrum from incredibly supportive and understanding to openly hostile like oh, oh I get it now you're going to leave every day at at 5:30 and I'm supposed to pick up the slack you know i mean that's i got that i saw it dished out um, and I also understood it. <laughs> yeah, I really empathized with people because I had picked up the slack, and it sort of sucks. But you know, we do have to propagate the species here. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if it's, you ever can make a choice that you're not conflicted about when it comes to working and motherhood, because either you're staying at home and you're feeling like you, you're not doing what you could be doing, you're living up to your potential, and also. There are many days when your brain feels like it's turning into jello because your <laughs> your intellectual stimulation consists of reading the alphabet books. Um, or you're at work and you're feeling like, oh, my kid had a fever today and I had to drop them off with the babysitter and I'm not being a good mom and not being supportive. And it sounds like I'm complaining about every Like everything's negative, but it's, the joy always comes with a little bit of self-doubt and questioning when you're making decisions as a mom because there doesn't seem to be one decision that is right even for you. <laughs> I, I, I honestly think that as we talk about the stages of motherhood, what you are trading when you become a mom, and this goes for taking on the responsibility of being a stepmom or playing a really, really strong and nurturing role in any child's life, you are giving up um, a certain amount of control. I guess I keep coming back to that word. You are you are taking on conflict, and you are giving up control. You're saying it's I'm going to be okay with placing my heart and my efforts and my love onto something that is its is its own independent little creature, and I'm just I'm going to pour my heart into this, and I have no idea how it's going to go. Um, you know, and and no, I'm and now I'm not going to be able to go to work and feel unconflicted. And I'm not going to be able to stay home and feel unconflicted. It's basically just accepting an enormous amount of ambiguity and static kind of in your life. And you just say, okay, um, bring it on. I want to go back for a minute to um, just to bring back a, another past episode we've done about pregnancy discrimination. And um, we've done one on the mommy tax and this kind of tightrope that you were both discussing of feeling like a bad mom if you're not spending enough time at home with your child and being judged societally for that. But on the other hand, being seen as a bad employee <laughs> if you take off the time to go and spend it with your child. And um, it's been really interesting hearing from people in different countries where the attitude towards taking time off as a new mother is different. But again, this is, yeah, it's this conflict that I think a lot of mothers feel. Yeah, we have not worked this thing out <laughs> in the U.S., certainly. I mean, Sweden's another story. I would be interested to know, like, you know, is that generally what you're finding, is that in other countries... Um, people are able to, I mean, they get ample, ample time off in 
many other countries, not all, but many other countries. Um, you know, we're certainly like way down there in the in the Western world um, for for amount of maternity leave that's that's typical. Um, but it, and it seems like people just understand that you in other places there's way more understanding that you're going to need time to adjust. And I think that's part of it. It's just like slamming one one identity up against the other, the mother versus the working person, the, you know, sexual person versus the maternal person. We're, we're just a bag of conflicts. We are. The only thing that I would say that makes it even more complicated is that your responsibility to mother this child that you've brought into the world doesn't end at three or six months. And so, you know, you feel like societally, if we had more, even a year more maternity leave, it would somehow be resolved, which it clearly wouldn't because toddlers need even more attention than infants need and teenagers sometimes (laughs) need even more than that. So, you know, you can't take 15 years off of work, no. <laughs> Unless and you're I totally not working. I agree with you. I mean, one of the things that I heard from a couple of different women who were real influences on me when my kids were tiny is, you know, if I had had this to do again, I would have taken off time much, much later. I would have gone straight back to work because when they're really little, lots of different people can meet their basic needs, and you're still mom at the end of the day. But it gets way more complicated when they're in middle school, when they're in high school. There are things that you will feel, man, I wish I was home to help with that. You know, I mean, this just helping my daughter go through the ridiculous college application process, thank God I got hip-checked out of my job in time to help <laughs> her with that because that, that felt like a job, not a full-time job, but a heavy-duty job. It's just, you know... The conditions of motherhood are, as Lisa, you're saying, they they change constantly. It's a job description that changes every few months. Like you're never going to keep up with it. You're never going to feel like you're soup. You that I got this feeling. You're never going to have that as a mom. And it, it also trumps anything you have at work. So even if you identify as with your career and you are CEO of your company. If your kid has an accident at school, you're leaving. Out of any meeting, it doesn't matter. You, Your kid is your, uh, maybe not for everyone, I would hazard, I guess, 80% of oh, women. I think that's totally true. Right? I mean, I used to say that I felt like my entire career was balanced on the head of a pin, and that was my kid's well-being, and which I kind of was constantly looking at and thinking, hmm, something's coming up. Is this the moment where I make the choice? I say like no I'm I'm putting it on putting my job on hold walking away from this for a while. It didn't really happen, but I did feel that precarious balance all the time. It's so funny you say that because lately I've been watching a lot of holiday movies. And <laughs> if I was to judge from them, then the stuff holiday movies are made from like 75% of them is a dad who's in a very powerful position who hasn't been home for Christmas Eve or Christmas in years, and then through some Christmas miracle realizes the importance of family and leaves in the middle of a big meeting to go be with his child. (laughs) Yeah, Hollywood, as usual, will catch up to us in about, I don't know, what, 20 years? (laughs) (laughs) Great. How how old are these movies you're watching? (laughs) Um, Well, I... I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I watched Jingle All the Way, which I learned um, (laughs) has a really funny legal history behind it. 
um, involving a stolen script. And uh, oh, Elf. Wow. So Elf is pretty, I guess, it's like 10 years old, I suppose. I love me some Elf, I got to tell you. <laughs> oh, Santa Claus is the same plot? I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Busy, busy daddy. Yes. You know, the the problem is if it was the mom, it could be any day of the year. If it's the dad, it's only on Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I don't know if anybody's been watching Big Little Lies or has watched that series, but that was just such an interesting kind of study in career women contrasted with women who are staying home or are doing some kind of half and half version. But I, you know... Laura Dern plays the the very high-powered career woman, and she is just a bitch on wheels. And I remember, you know, watching the first episode and thinking, oh, are you kidding? <laughs> Wait, why can't we be nice and powerful? Exactly. Why do we have to be mean to be powerful? Yes. And, you know, Reese Witherspoon is fantastic, but I just thought, come on, this is meant to be a feminist statement, this series. And it's it, I loved that, that it was so woman-powered, that show. But at the same time, I felt like it slung around a few cliches that I could have could have done without. Yeah, I've seen that over and over again where women can only be A or B. We cannot be both. But hopefully, we're moving away from that. Um, and, and sort of moving along and skipping, I would say, it sounds like listening to you both that we could have a phase like every couple of months <laughs> of motherhood <laughs> and shifts. Um, I remember I used to edit this podcast called Mothership, and um, one of the co-hosts described mother her experience as being a mother as running through molasses. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> if we jump ahead to adolescence, which both of you sort of were saying, perhaps is a time when you wish you could have been been more involved or when there are these things that maybe we don't pay as much attention to when we're talking about identity and motherhood. Um, Could you speak about your experiences with this adolescence phase? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I remember reflecting when, um, you know, my kids were going through, I would say, the grouchiest part of their adolescence, which thank God they're, they're definitely through. You know, there's this point when your kids are really little and they just, they keep you in the moment and they bring you up. I mean, it's just, a, it's kind of a fantastic and miraculous thing. And anybody who has a child they're close to feels this. They just, as soon as you're with them, they, it's like a happy drug. I mean, it just, it just really is. Maybe not when they're having a complete meltdown in a parking lot, but for the most part, the the mood is just so ebullient with young kids. And, you know, the role sort of shifts. They get much more independent, obviously, as adolescents. But your role, I think, is to bring them some kind of emotional stability because their emotions are so whacked. Yeah. I don't know if you found that, Lisa. Um, yeah, yes, they got super moody. Um, but in terms of my position, it was weird because I always thought of myself as the cool kid. You know, I was part of the cool crowd and there's nothing to smack you down to to how uncool you are than a teenage child who's like, you're really going to wear that? Oh my God, yes, they're merciless. Um, And you see yourself differently too. And there's an attempt to 
cling to your youth um, with your with your little fingertips as it slips away from you, and then realizing that somebody in this relationship has to be the grown up. Um, especially when your children, it's not, and it's not their job, so it, it, it is yours. Um, but that you suddenly feel like even even when I felt anyway, and I had my kids pretty young, I could still feel youthful with young children. When my children became teenagers, I saw myself through their eyes, and I was suddenly old. You see themselves through their eyes because they tell you what they see. Oh, yes. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'll never forget my cousin once saying to my aunt when she came down in the morning, we were all staying somewhere for a vacation. He said, what'd you do, Ma, sleep on your face? I mean, it just, you know, and he was actually a nice kid. (laughs) (laughs) They're just, they're just heartless. Yeah, and they see you as like someone who has no idea no clue, like A, you're stupid because you have no idea that they were drinking, right? Uh-huh. So, <laughs> and they couldn't figure it out. Um, you're stupid, you have bad taste, um, you don't understand anything. Right. So, and the hard part as a parent is that because it is your job to be the parent, you can't ever take anything personally because when it becomes personal, it becomes a fight and then you treat your child in a way that's all about ego and not about being supportive because they that when they're the worst is when they need the most support. So it's this really hard place of being beaten up, your ego being beaten up by all their criticism and having to step outside of your ego so that you can retain that maturity to be a supportive parent. It's weird. Yeah, it really is. And being, you know, you come through this phase where you're trying to raise, you know, responsible, upstanding citizens, maybe not rule followers, but basic rule followers. And so a lot of it is about discipline and a lot of it is about setting some norms And then they become adolescents and you find yourself moving those boundaries so far because you can't fight with them all the time. No. You know, and and it's exhausting and honestly demoralizing to try and do that. You got to let a lot go and and just kind of hope that the grounding that you gave them when they were little will stick. And and, and it does. More complicated than that I found was that I had to be consistent with my values and the choices I was making because when they're little you can tell them we don't tell lies and we you know we don't hit other people and then suddenly when they're teenagers they're not listening to you anymore but they're watching everything you do. So when you when someone asks you a question, you're like, oh, we can't make it tonight because... And you make up some f- terrible lie like, oh, yes, because the cat's sick or whatever it is. They see your behavior and they model that. So you have to be really very careful ab- about walking your talk when your kids are adolescents. While giving them all kinds of room to sort of break some rules and distance from you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 very tough and that sort of... That feeling of closeness um, that I think many, many people, many moms and mom figures have as as their like smaller kids are growing up, they have to distance from you. They absolutely have to. You are not going to have that feeling of closeness and it can leave you feeling intensely lonely. Um, if you don't have closeness with your partner through that, good luck to you. I mean, you know, if you're not partnered... I think it's even tougher. It's just, it's a lonely time at best. 
you need a lot of, and you know, honestly, that's where other women I found to be just hugely, hugely helpful. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, there are always these others' identities too, right, that people have at the same time. And one of those is um, it could be single motherhood and one of them could be LGBTQ motherhood. Um, so we always have these multiple identities within us that shape our experiences. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on before we moved on from adolescence is I remember both of you talking about this pitfall of defining yourself through your child's accomplishments. And I feel like this would start manifesting pretty hardcore around adolescence, um, somewhere in there. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that in that happens in two ways. What one is that you see your own faults in your kids, like your weaknesses and your tendencies in me, you know, it's like procrastination, um emotional eating, the I the things that I struggle with myself, I can see pop up in my children and you just don't want them to you don't want them to struggle in the same way that you've struggled. And it makes it worse because you draw attention to it with your kids. And then I think a lot of people feel like they, if they didn't achieve the success that they wanted or somehow see their children as manifestations of their own work. <laughs> um, and they worth. Put, yeah, and worth. They put so much pressure on these kids. And that's not fair either. Yeah, I mean, having just gone through the arms race that is the college admissions process, you know, there are, every parent, let me just preface by saying every parent is doing the best they can in a really tough situation. But wow, are there some um, some people who you think, this is not about your kid, this is about you. Um, and I guess I just, I feel like having watched so many parents get deeply, deeply involved in this process, trying to raise these uber kids who will get into the best colleges, even if that, even if your wish comes true and, you know, your child does you proud, which, you know, you is the operative word there, um, that kid is then going to go off and live that life on their own right? quite immediately. And it's not your life. And you... You know, to me, I feel like particularly for women, this is yet another moment where you think that defining ourselves by others' accomplishments, by others' identity, by others, the direction that other people are taking in our lives, is you do this at your peril. And um, society may be molding us into those partner figures, those booster figures, those maternal figures, um, but you need to know what this means to you separately and you need your own stuff, you know? Right. And because, well, even if, if they're doing great, fine, you can bask in your own in your kid's glory, but they're they're gonna fail. Everybody fails yeah, at right. some point. And do you wanna carry that around as also? You know, it's it just it's not a smart way to go through life getting your identity through your child's accomplishments. But I think a lot of people do it. Um, subconsciously, not really for themselves, 
or they're not aware. There's an aspect that it is for your sense of pride and 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 being a good parent because you've gotten your kid to go to an Ivy League school or something. But there's also the feeling that you don't want your kid to suffer. And the, when they fail on some level, they don't get into their college of choice um, or they don't feel like they're measuring up to their peers. It's hard and it's painful. And as a mother, everything your child feels, every little pain is almost, you can feel it in your own body almost. It's like oh a little... God, absolutely. Right? You know, yeah. you have that little... Yeah. I, I remember times when my kids have been had frustrations and failures and it just... And, and they're so sad and there's nothing you can do about it as a parent. It just rips you apart. Well, I think that that's part of the um, sucker punch of going through motherhood. I mean, one of the, one of the wonderful things... Uh, is that feeling you get when you can fix it for them, when there is something concrete that you can do to make them feel better. But ultimately, as your relationship with them matures, the best thing you can do is not fix it for them and just let and and be there right. and feel how, you know, feel the feels with them. Right. And it will hurt you possibly even more than it hurts them. <laughs> yeah. Um but they'll become resilient. They'll become resilient yeah. and they'll they'll realize and you'll realize that they don't need you to to deal. And, yeah. and that's ideally if all goes well, you will be obsolete, which is a weird <laughs> um part of of the learning of motherhood, right? It's planned obsolescence. Yep. And it's kind of upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> well, which I think so many of us are addicted to the helicopter parenting method. You know, fix everything immediately, never let them struggle, um, which you won't always be there. Even if you try, at some point, you're not going to be able to fix everything for your kids. So way far better to let them learn how to fix it for themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many parents I talked to a new who went through the horrible period where their child couldn't sleep unless they were sleeping in their bed. <laughs> you know, one of the most important skills you can teach a kid is to go to sleep on their own, which sounds ridiculously basic, but it literally, it will serve them every day of their life. It's, it's just one of the basic things. And yet so many parents, I think... Um, you know, A, kids are really tough. This is one of the toughest things. I've never experienced exhaustion like I did when my kids were little. Never, ever, ever, and never will I again. But, you know, that falling into that trap of just come in my bed and I'll cuddle you and you'll go to sleep and we'll be fine. It's easier than fighting with them. It is, but ultimately, ultimately... Ultimately, you, learn. Have, you only have one kid because you never have sex again. <laughs> right, exactly. Because <laughs> your kid's in your bed with you. See, problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, new goal, become obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this all reminds me of uh, once when I was in high school, I won a very prestigious award, and I bring it up at every occasion that I can. But uh, <laughs> I had to give a speech, um, and my dad, before I went out, he, he kind of kneeled in front of me, and he said, Annie, here's what you say, that these teachers have been the architects of my dreams. He goes into this very long and flowery and beautiful speech, and then I get out there and I just tell jokes the entire time. Um, <laughs> and I, I imagine it as like the equivalent of just a very heavy sigh, and then, then he had to let go and 
know that that was me <laughs> being me and I wasn't going to give this speech as much as he wanted me to give it. And as beautiful as it was, it wasn't going to happen. Well, I'm sure he was hugely proud of you eventually. <laughs> but during, during the speech, he was probably tied in a pretzel of, of conflict, you know. And here's where I think Lisa was right at the beginning. This is not, we're not just talking about mothers here. He was super proud, loved that you were this individual, loved that you had gone off on your own and, and gotten this prize, hated that you were not accepting it in the way that he would, hated that you, you know, <laughs> didn't take his advice, that you were clearly an individual. And probably and terrified that she might mess up because she wasn't doing the, yes. the speech that he had planned. Yes. <laughs> and what if she had failed in public and then he would have been shamed? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so <True>. much at play. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it was so interesting going through the process with my daughter where I helped her. I'm an editor, so I worked with her on her college essay. At the same time, I also work with lots of kids from different institutions um, and organizations on their college essays. It's just like a volunteer part of my life. And they were dream writer-editor relationship partners. They loved my edits. They were super happy to make my edits. They loved our conversations. My daughter, oh my God, correcting a typo I had to prove it to her that that is not how the word was spelled. So, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a unique, unique relationship. And yet, you know what? Her essay came out awesome. It wasn't the same way that your speech wasn't the one your dad would have given. Her essay wasn't the one I might have written, but it was awesome and it did the job. And I remember working with with a friend's, um, with a friend's son she took me aside and said, I, here's what he should write about. Here's, here, I, I know what he should write about. He's not writing about this. So can you just talk to him? She was back-channeling with me. So I sit down with this kid, who I knew somewhat. We had a long, long, long conversation. And her idea was, was just balls out terrible for him. And not only that, he could barely remember, he could barely recollect the event that she wanted him to write about. So it was just, it was, there was nothing there. There was nothing in the well. And, um, and yet she was so sure, his mother, who knows him better than whatever, you know, she was so sure. And honestly, some of the worst essay ideas I've heard in the course of doing this work have come from moms. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that says, but I'm taking it to heart. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, we have many more phases to discuss with you listeners. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So now let's talk about this phase that you both mentioned at the top, the empty nest phase. When children leave, what happens to this shifting identity of motherhood? Well, it's funny because I think child rearing, even if you have one child, is about 18 years. And it's that's a long chunk of time to do anything. And when you have more than one child, it's significantly longer. 
But the day they leave the house, you're still, you're not not a mother anymore. You're still a mother and you're still mothering them. But all of the things that you did on a daily basis from making them breakfast to checking over their homework to, you know, making sure that they had done their chores or whatever it was, that all goes away. And suddenly you have time that you never had before and you also... It's not that you become a different person, but that you have the opportunity to manifest a different aspect of yourself. And combined with all that, you're really sad because you miss them terribly. And your husband is going, oh, great. Now we're alone. We can have way more sex. Which is exactly what happened to me. (laughs) I mean, it's, yes, we have way more sex. It's wonderful. But I, you know, we dropped my older daughter off and we had dropped my younger daughter off at boarding school and... My husband wiped away exactly one tiny tear and literally in the car commenced grabbing my knee. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking, have you not noticed that I'm crying so hard that there is snot running down my face? Like, I haven't cried like this and I can't remember how long. All I can say is the turn on for him, it didn't, it, like, he wasn't really noticing anything except that we are alone and we are going to be alone for the next four months and this hasn't happened in 18 years. And oh my God, this is going to be so exciting. It was exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. But I just am going to say that I think men and women experience this extremely differently. And I've compared this particular note with Lisa and many other women, and it is incredibly consistent. The guys are like, I'm dating my wife again. This is good. And the women, that's maybe the the. 15th thing they talk about when their kids leave home. Well, I, we didn't touch on that previously when we were talking about the phases of motherhood, but definitely the way that your relationship with your partner, whether it's, you know, a, a LGBT, another woman or another man, or wh- whoever your romantic partner who's co-parenting with you, whoever your sexual partner is, definitely that relationship changes once you have kids. Time exhaustion, um, prioritizing kids over over spouse, which happens a lot. I see it all the time where kids come first and then the, the sexual partner is an afterthought. Um, and not even thought of really as a sexual partner. Well, that too, because... Just a partner, partner. Like, I would sink. I would die without you. I couldn't keep these balls in the air without you. Props to the single parents out there because I don't know how you do it. I really don't. Well, imagine dating that level. Oh uh, the God. work that would have to go in to finding someone new when <sighs> you are balancing baby care at home. Yes. Not fun. Yes. No, it's uh, motherhood is a crazy balancing act. But I think with the when you hit that empty nest phase, all of the frustration that your partner may have felt all those years in that your sex life has taken a backseat if for nothing else but just the Time, noise energy. control. Yeah, right, exactly. Because <laughs> you're on top of each other, you know, with the room side next to whatever it is. Um, it's, it's like a rebirth of your physical relationship because nobody's there. It is. It is. And I do not want to downplay how awesome that is. <laughs> and you, you know, you, you sort of... I, I even feel like there are moments when you look at yourself in the mirror and you're just a little, you, you see yourself bathed in a little bit of a different light, which is, which is a nice thing. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of cast this all as just a 
horrible, sobby moment because it's not. It's There's so much to discover. Yeah, and you you know what? Interestingly, you are a different person um, after years of of child-rearing together and going through the ups and downs of of life together. And that kind of intimacy does have its benefits. Yeah. But, I mean, you and I are both married to famous talkers. <laughs> and, you know, Mehmet is a literally famous talker. My husband is famous in his circles for, for all the talking that he does. And yet there are silences. There are these moments. And you think, like, wow, we haven't had, we haven't sat across from each other at a dinner table in our house, just the two of us, in you can't even remember how long. And it's wonderful. And at the same time, there can be a, a moment to reappraise the whole situation, you know? Well, I think a lot of relationships will fall apart at that stage yeah. too. Even if you aren't consciously staying together for kids, you do get to that dinner table and it's just the two of you looking at each other and you think, the quiet can the hell be, are you? <laughs> can be a little weird and deafening. And yeah. yeah. And, Who is and, this person? And you, and you got to start the conversation again. Because you've been distracted and you haven't paid attention because it's been a family and your identity is in the family and not as a couple. And then when you have to face the fact that you are a couple, maybe you don't want to be that couple. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I also want to say that I've seen, I've seen some... I've seen some dads grieve seriously when their kids go off to school. It's, I, don't, I don't want to generalize too much, but um, crying. Oh, <laughs> Maybe more of a mom thing. I haven't cried yet. I don't think Mehmet has about being empty nesters, but it is it is a shift, and it's a shift in how you see yourself and what how you spend your time as an individual and what you're what you're now going to be spending your time as. But it's also a shift as the relationship identity. I think is 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 definitely different than it is as a family at home identity. Yeah. I'm sure there's some reevaluating that that goes on because yeah, if you haven't had much time alone together for the past 18 or so years anyway, yeah. <laughs> Coming back to that and kind of having to figure out what this new this new phase is for for both people in that situation. You know, and I think for a lot of women there's a moment where you think, how much do I want to invest in this? Maybe there are other things I care about more. Um, and your relationship may dissolve because of that or it may be okay. Um, but I do I do notice this in, in sort of a lot of my peers and women I look up to who are a little bit further along on this road than I am. Some of them decided it's not going to be about my relationship. I'm going to you know, there are all kinds of adventures I want to have and other kinds of relationships I want to pour myself into and they put in only what they want to. But there are these all these extra cycles that you have and they're go they got to go somewhere. Yeah, we've heard from a lot of women uh, and it's been wonderful who after their children left, uh, they started traveling. They started doing things that they didn't get the chance to do before they had children. And a lot of them that we've heard from are doing it by themselves and then kind of having coming back to a relationship and discussing like what did I go do while I was solo and having like these new conversation topics. Um, but that's been really lovely hearing from women going out and doing that. Um, I'm kind of having this conversation with my mom right now because she wants to go start traveling. I'm very excited for her. Yeah. And does she want to do this on her own? Yeah, she does. <laughs> Go your mom. I think that's fantastic. I mean, you know, it, this is, it's the first time you've had in so many years where you didn't really have to compromise. 
And you really can focus on yourself and how you want to grow and who you want to be and what kind of experiences you want to have. You can and you can do it with a partner. But when you have kids at home, you know, you're, it's more like the family is the priority, not necessarily y- your personal growth. You know, your sense of adventure. Where does she want to go? She wants to go to either Ireland um, or Scotland or Hawaii. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a big spread there. Yeah, yeah. She's got a. She loves um, hiking, and Hawaii is good for that. But she also loves beer, and her family's from Scotland, so Scotland and Ireland <laughs> are good for that. <laughs> all right, she's got she's got two big trips. Yeah, exactly. I'm all for it. Take both of them. Would she let you come with her? Oh, absolutely. She would love to, just because I'm a big planner, and I think it would be a relief for her not to have to plan something for once as well. Um, and I'm happy to go. I'm super happy to go with her. Well, Mom, if you're listening, Annie <laughs> yeah. wants to go on this trip with you. <laughs> Got yes. some extra mileage. <laughs> Whether you want it or not, Mom, I'm coming with. <laughs> um, this also reminds me of another movie. I, I'm big on movies if that wasn't obvious, but there's a movie called What Lies Beneath (laughs) where uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character uh, and her husband, Harrison Ford, drop off their daughter. This is how the movie starts, at college. And like immediately as they turn out the door, Michelle Pfeiffer starts crying and Harrison Ford is like, I knew you'd start crying right away. Um, (laughs) Also, he turned out to be a murderer, spoiler alert. But... uh, (laughs) Well, I don't know. What Lies Beneath was a clue. It sounds like a horror movie. (laughs) It was one of my favorite horror movies as a kid. I was a strange kid, I guess. So what happens next? I've never seen this. It sounds good. (laughs) Well, I could go into a whole thing, (laughs) but there involves like a mystery and like watching your neighbor and judging your neighbor. And they do do start having a lot of sex, kind of like what you started talking about. Um, And then... There's a ghost involved and a seance and, um, wow, it hasn't been like this, I'll tell you. For me. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) I think this is a very specific experience. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) But it did have some similar themes to what you were discussing. Definitely. I mean, you know, on my phone I have a Robin Jill list, which is like stuff. And I've, I've been adding to it, you know, for about a year now. And it's kind of interesting that I was that I did find myself so struck by this transition because I'd been looking forward to it for such a long time. I mean, you know, it's a long list I've been keeping on my phone. And we've been we've been like it's a, it's a bucket list we've been getting to. Have you to checked it. any off yet? Oh yeah, definitely. Like hanging on the chandelier type things or like going to <laughs> well, not the, sure. the Adirondacks the kind of thing. More like um all right, this is going to sound so dumb and boring, but like there's this jazz guitarist that plays in our neighborhood. He plays at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. That is not, when you have kids at home, you That's don't go <laughs> hear jazz guitar on a Sunday night. Right. And now we do. We do stuff like that. You know, we like, we'll grab a drink. We work in the same neighborhood. We will grab a drink after work and just figure dinner out later or I don't know crackers when we get home. I love not having to make dinner oh some nights. Oh my god, it's such a liberation. Because you feel compelled to actually feed your children. If it's just your husband, you can say, oh, uh, they're leftovers to- <laughs> in the fridge or, or exactly crackers. It's such a, that, that 
is a real, I didn't realize what a highlight that would be. Some nights just to come home and say, forget it. I'm not even thinking about food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certain routines, I don't know how other women out there feel, but the making of the school lunch was the straw that broke the camel's <laughs> back for me on a daily basis. And it just, it just felt like that one chore. There were many, many, many other chores that went with being the parent of my two kids when they were home. That one chore was the one I, re- I just resented so much. And I would be sitting there at, you know, 11.45 at night cutting carrot sticks and just thinking, I want to carve out my own eyeball. <laughs> this is just this is just a nightmare. And, you know, there things are so optional now. Yeah. Yep. There's like, there's nothing like that. So I'm listening to jazz guitar instead, <laughs> nice. instead of cutting carrot sticks. It is funny how there's always that one chore that for some reason is the one that is too much. I don't know why it was lunch for me. What was it for you, Lisa? Um, it was not, there was never a chore, a specific thing that, ugh, that would repeatedly get under my skin. I think it was, for me, it, rather than being physical, it was an emotional. It was the fact that no matter what, I was always the last priority. The kids' needs would come first. Mehmet's needs would come first. What I wanted. Sometimes Rosie the dog's needs The, the dog, first. yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. yes. I would be like hung over and I'd have to get up at five and take the dog out. <laughs> and it would be me because um, she was training as a, you know, as a puppy. But I, that would get to me sometimes. It was just like, you know, why, why is everyone more valuable than I am in my own life? Um, And I would think about that sometimes and I would think because that's what you've chosen and then you kind of shift it and you don't feel like a victim anymore. You feel like empowered because it is a choice, not something being thrust upon you. But that that would sometimes be the thing that I would think about. Yeah, yeah. And and try not to boil with rage. No, no, it was never rage. It was more a You're not a rageful person. No. You're not well, a rageful mother. Not, I can no, attest to that. You no, really are. No, 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 no. Uh, which is, that was your other podcast, The Mother Destroyer, Annie. <laughs> the, the rageful mother who eats her, her children. Um, no, but it sometimes you just feel like there's never time for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I do think, again, this is not this is not typical of you at all, but I do think rage actually becomes a part of some women's maternal identity. That Which is so like dangerous. A, a sense of resentment and the, just the sense of being put upon. And they are so often absolutely justified, that that feeling, but when it but it can become like a core piece of who you are. It kind of calcifies um, over the years. I've, I've seen it happen. I've felt it sometimes. I've gone through through periods, you know, when my kids were one and three, my husband traveled all the time. He was, you know, gone roughly half the time. And I was just, I was so uh, spread thin. It was, it were was, you angry at him or them? I was angry at my life. Oh, Okay. I mean, I knew he was doing the best he could. I was doing the best I could. Um, I wasn't angry at anyone in particular. I was rageful at the world. Yeah. Um, and I remember it coming, you know, just, I just felt like 
I just had daggers coming out my eyes most of the time. I was like that, but it was always directed towards Mehmet. (laughs) (laughs) Good target. Yeah. You can take it. Well, he wasn't there either. So it was sort of like you with Robert where he was gone. Mehmet was on call every either every third or every other night. And having little kids at home and being, for all intents and purposes, a 50% single parent, there was anger there, but never towards my kids. It wasn't their fault. It was his kids. It was his fault. It's a whole (laughs) different ball game from two kids. I mean, that is just. You were so outnumbered. So I couldn't have been too angry with him because I kept getting pregnant. (laughs) Exactly. You wanted those hormones that you could get a release from it. I read so many accounts from women online uh, describing exactly what you're talking about and um, feeling secondary in their own lives and having to adjust to that. Um, And we do have even more phases of motherhood and a little bit of um, pitfalls to avoid and tips. But first, one more quick break for word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So something else I found when I was researching this that we thought we'd touch on briefly because they are going to be their own episodes um, is the shifting identity after divorce. And since like we touched on at the top, women are often defined whether by themselves or by someone else or both through someone else, um, that when they go through a divorce they feel this identity crisis that now they check single as opposed to married um, and your kids might have a different last name than you. Um, Your friends might have chosen a side necessitating you to make new friends. And um, I think that is another thing that a lot of mothers might go through at any of these phases that we've been discussing. Yeah, I think while it changes how you see yourself completely and all in all the ways that you mentioned, I think it also changes your relationship to m- being a mother to your children in a variety of ways in which it can manifest. Either you become competitive with your ex for your child's emotions, or you can use your children as pawns in the war against your X, Jill, you are the, a child of divorce. How did yeah. how did that affect your relationship with your mom? And well, I mean, it was kind of a scorched earth divorce. It was hellish, um, and I think if anything, we were closer than ever, though not in the healthiest way, because she relied on me emotionally very heavily. Um, but that was like a that was a certain era of divorce where. It was that period of time where so many of my friends were getting divorced and their fathers basically left the picture. I mean, maybe they were weekend dads, maybe. My father moved to the West Coast. I saw him on vacations and very occasionally. And so my mom was suddenly, you know, the sole, sole support for us emotionally, not financially, but emotionally. And I guess one of the things that I would say is that divorce is a is a really rocky and difficult identity shift, but I have seen people carve out really wonderful mother identities as divorced women. And I think in a really weird way, there is something about the more modern custody arrangement, which is 
50-50 time sharing that can be really healthy for moms. I mean, number one, you cannot, no matter what, you cannot make yourself the sole primary parent. It forces your husband or your partner to step up. You cannot be the primary person. You can't be the best at it. And I think a lot of women find that a, a difficult transition, but ultimately it's kind of great. You know, your partner develops all kinds of competency. You learn to respect them. And then you also have time. You Shared custody means you have time with your kids and time to yourself. When a lot of that, you know, where you do develop these other sides of yourself, that if your kids are with you 24-7, you may not have it. I, so, I mean, obviously I'm not recommending divorces and shared custody as the, you know, the 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 new and beneficial social construct that we should all be striving for. It's incredibly painful. But um I've seen I've seen great co-parenting examples amongst my friends. I think divorce is totally different in this day and age than it was when I was a kid. And I've I've seen women, you know, that sort of post-traumatic growth thing happen in an extreme way, partly because they have time. Every other weekend. Every other weekend and <laughs> half the weeks. <laughs> Uh, and sort of going off of this, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned on the show, but I am planning a deep dive on the evil stepmother trope. <laughs> and through my research, I've learned so much about how this evil stepmother identity has bled out into the real world and makes stepmothers doubt themselves and makes stepchildren distressed their stepmothers. Um, mm. A lot of accounts I've read described that the stereotype undermines their confidence when parenting, and it starts as early as, like, whenever they can watch Cinderella. Um, <laughs> so we're definitely going to come back to that, but uh, if there's anything you wanted to say before we moved on. Well, Jill, you had a stepmother, right? I did. I did. I lost her a few years ago. I, you know, she was a fantastic figure in my life. She really was. She couldn't have been more different from my mother. And um, she was never really in a caretaking role with me at all. She became my stepmom when I was uh, 13. And she lived with my father on the West Coast. She was significantly younger than my dad. And so seemed like a very young woman to me, much younger than my mom. And she taught me by example all kinds of things. She taught me what right up close what a different kind of woman who's made different kinds of choices would was like and it is it was incredibly helpful the first few years weren't pretty i won't <laughs> i won't lie um and you know we laughed about them later but eventually it was it actually really enriched my life i i would say though annie i think your research is absolutely right and is such a thankless role because often you are pulling just as much weight as any of the other parents in this situation um and yet you will never get any kind of congratulations or appreciation um unless unless that child singles you out and lets you know um that they care about you and that you're helpful to them, the world will not give you that kind of acknowledgement. The kid might, um, but but the world certainly won't. Yeah, I, I think I think the reason that all the fairy tales is not just Cinderella, the evil stepmothers in Snow White, in um, Hansel and Gretel, and I think 
on a psychological level, it's a safer way for us to deal with the dark side of the mother archetype, that devouring mother that you talked about in your last podcast, um, because it is so universal. And, um, and I do think it's something that we have to contend with in our psyches. And so I, I do think making it a stepmother rather than the archetypal, you know, Madonna image is just a way for our psyches to process that devouring mother archetype. Um, so it's unfortunate that the, the, the stepmother gets the, gets the that bad wrath. But I think it's a it's a bigger archetype than necessarily your your father's new wife. Yeah, and it's so interesting that we don't have you know the same roiling cauldron of associations with a stepfather. I mean. I don't know. No, because fathers can just be straight up negative. <laughs> you can have the good right. dad and the bad dad. But but archetypally, the, if it's your mom in a fairy tale or a mythology, she's she's usually protective. Right. Whereas the stepmom portrays that negative side that could be your real mother. Right. This is it's a duality, but mm-hmm. we don't have the same duality associated with fathers. There is a lot of really interesting history stuff and cultural stuff around it. Um, I can't wait to talk about it. So (laughs) keep an ear out for that, listeners. Um, Another thing that we're not going to talk about a lot in this episode, but it can and will be its own episode, um, is the reverse of this, of women whose identities shift when they have lost a child or find out that they can't get pregnant. Um, And of course, adoption is an option for most people. Anyway, not everyone. Um, But from... What I've learned speaking to folks who are going through this anecdotally is it shifts how you view yourself and your body, especially if you've always dreamed of getting pregnant and having children. So that will certainly be its own conversation. Absolutely. And I I wish that there was a channel um, where it's just, it's a very difficult thing for women to share with one another, with the world. Um, you know, we keep our pregnancies a secret, so until we know they're viable, and so when that loss happens, nobody knows how much you hoped, how yeah. much you, th- how real that child was for you. You you said secret, and it's funny. It makes me think that you know, in preparation for this podcast, I was thinking, what's the literature around motherhood and and identity? And there hasn't been a whole heck of a lot on it. There certainly Shakespeare didn't write about it, and everything is. Um, from I think partially because it maybe isn't that interesting to men. I don't know why there hasn't been more thought put into it. But part of it, I think, is because we we as women keep everything secret and ha- have historically done so. So you, we were talking about the other day when we get our periods. There's something every transition we make, it feels shameful, like something we can't share with people around us, even our mothers and sisters. We try to hide it for a while or very rarely is it something that is like, oh, yeah, I just got my period. Thank God girls are finally <laughs> changing around this and being a little more open, yeah. but certainly, you know. But the same thing with pregnancy, with loss of pregnancy, with struggles with fertility. It's not something you advertise or even seek help on. Menopause, when was the last time someone's like, oh, yeah, I'm menopausal? Yeah. I was like, oh, it's so terrifyingly shameful. Like, I bury me now. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. I can't talk. So I think as women, so much of what we experience in our shifting identity, we hold inside and we don't because we feel either that we're going to be judged by 
on it or that no one can relate to it or that I don't know why, but it it feels like our whole lives are a little bit secret. <laughs> and I mean, you know, part of the reason we we started U-turns was to try and bring those transitions out of the closet and just make it make it normal to talk about to talk about those transitions. Um, but I do feel like just getting back to loss of a child, it's amazing how attached and how fully formed a, the idea of a baby can be before a bump even appears. You know, I mean, I remember my um, gynecologist did some kind of a sonogram early, early on and announced that uh, I was having a boy. And so I was really surprised that we could know this so early. And then immediately, this was this boy that I was having. And I he just took form for me. And then about a month later, she said, oh, I was strong having a girl. <laughs> and it was crazy how I felt, it, I felt it as a loss. I was thrilled to be having a girl, but I wasn't having that boy. And yeah. in the course of a month, he was a he and he was, you know... He was in our lives, and I was lucky I didn't ever have a miscarriage, but it felt like a loss, and it made me realize, wow, what an extraordinary... If that felt like a loss, how big to to lose your pregnancy. Yeah, I, I, it's just so overwhelming, I think, um, because it's it's you, but it's somebody else. <laughs> you know, you have a relationship, um, and and... I think with infertility too, people really struggle, and even if they have never been pregnant, or and just the inability to get pregnant, I think it's it's something that is way deeper than we. Can you know, it makes me it makes me actually wonder. So the reason we don't, you don't tell anyone when you first find out you're pregnant is because there's a high risk that you'll miscarry in the right. first trimester, and you don't want to have to tell people about that. Yeah, why? Do we do that? I don't Why know. I think don't there's superstition too, because you think people. like if you told them, and the, uh, right? you know, like you always like. I just wonder how different it would be if culturally we just said, "Yeah, I, I got a positive pregnancy test. Fingers crossed, I'm pregnant." And then, and then, yes, you would have to tell people. Anyone you had told, you would have to tell. But maybe then you wouldn't feel so alone. I don't know. I mean, I'm just just tossing it out there, world. Yeah, and you have to do you have to do a whole podcast on this because it's so big and it's such a such an important I think topic. So it's it's up to you. Oh, okay, <laughs> I Pressure. totally agree that like these are conversations that we should be having more of, um, and just to get a better scope of what people are dealing with and the experiences out there. Um, but that is for a different episode, not this one. We're going to wrap things up here with some advice. And the number one of which I read online was patience um, and learning <laughs> to be okay with not being perfect. And you both touched on that pretty early on in the beginning. And then another one I would say is be mindful of social media you consume and comparing yourself to other parents. We've said it time and time again on this show. You are seeing a very cultivated image on social media, and that's what it's for. But just you need to be aware of that um, and don't put yourself down. Don't use that stuff to put yourself down. And this goes with like everything. But mothering, 
specifically in this episode, and I found a quote from um, clinical and maternal psychologist Aurelia Thon who coined the term matrescence, uh, which is sort of like the awkward mm. motherhood version of adolescence. And it describes mothering as an experience similar to a layer cake, which I love. So she wrote, mothering changes with experience. With every child, there's a layer cake effect. And there are different stories in mothering young babies or children aged zero to three than there are in how to raise young children or adolescents and then also emerging adults and then the empty nest experience. There are mothers of now-grown children who continue to wrestle with the very same questions. The story just deepens and becomes all the more fascinating. And she's pushing for women to talk about these realities of motherhood that we don't hear about a lot with the hashtag matrescence. So if any of you listeners want to share these experiences, there's a hashtag for you. And ultimately, like we were discussing when we were planning this episode, we need to find a way to think about ourselves and this question of identity and multiple identities and how they coexist and how external relationships impact how we see ourselves, which is not a simple task, no. But we can start having this, these conversations and asking these questions of ourselves. Yes, definitely. I mean, that is not the catchiest hashtag I've ever heard, <laughs> but it's a fascinating term and it's a fascinating idea. And I, I do feel like, you know, women, the more open we can be in sharing the, you know, as I said, it's a job description that seems to change every three months or so. So you never get good at this. <laughs> you just, that's, that's the way, that's what being a mom is. And sharing the sort of stumbles along the way that we all experience kind of constantly is... I, I think just unbelievably healthy. Agreed. I also think I think we need to be more clear on uh, who we are ourselves. Um, as much as other people can be supportive and how ne- and necessary in our lives, I I really do think that we sometimes lose sight of our own north star. So I think checking in every now and then to know who you really are, who what your values are, will keep you from being buffeted by all those things that pull your identity in different directions. Take that trip. Take that trip to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love this. It's like advice, official advice I can give my mom now. <laughs> um, and I also think um, one thing that came up, one last thing before we head out of here, is um, being real about the difficulties and feelings that you might experience that are on the more negative side, but also being real about the positive things and the wins so that it's a a more nuanced and accurate, true experience. Yep. Yeah, I, I, with, with, especially with motherhood, with every um, challenge, there's always something, there's always a blessing. Children are, are such a blessing. So I just think being aware of that... Um, that no matter what you're going through, there is an element of blessing in that experience. Well, I think (laughs) that's a pretty good place to leave it unless either of you have something to add. Oh, no. Thank you so much, Annie. It's been a real pleasure. Fascinating conversation. Thanks. Yes. Thank you both so much for joining us today and helping out with co-hosting. Where can people find you? At U-Turns Podcast. There you go. (laughs) Easy. It's Y-O-U-Turns. 
Well, thanks again for joining us. And if you listeners would like to share your experiences with motherhood, identity, any of these conversations we brought up, or really anything at all, you can email us. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks as always to our producer, Trevor Young. Trevor Young.